It worked. Is it weird where we just expect things to go, you know, crazy wrong and wonky, and then they somehow work? Um, well, as, as some of you may know, I, for the first 14 years of my life, uh, grew up in Germany. And being you know, in Germany and then living here and kind of experiencing the different cultures, uh, you, you learn a little bit about kind of how they see Americans and how we see them and all those kinds of things. And, and interestingly enough, you know, if you travel in Europe for any length of time, one of the things you'll, you'll learn is that Europe as a whole really hates America. Or, sorry, hates Americans, but loves America. Like they do. I remember telling friends that I was moving when I was 14 years old, and you know, their vision, of course, the only places they know are New York City and Los Angeles, and maybe Texas if they watched some cowboy shows when they were growing up. You know, so when I told them I was moving to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, they're like, you know, they pictured like Amish life or something. I don't know what they're. But, but they, the, the Germans, they love Americans, and they have an obsession with one particular person that is just beyond my imagination, incomprehensible. German people stinking love David Hasselhoff. <laughs> like, do you see that on TV? That's not a myth. That's real, verifiable stuff. They have an obsession with this guy that is just beyond anything you could imagine. And what's weird is we know David Hasselhoff from what? A couple TV shows, right? Knight Rider and the like. They love Hasselhoff as a singer. If you didn't know this, David Hasselhoff has a very, very prominent music career, especially in Germany. And as a matter of fact, right now, you can go on his website and you can buy your tour tickets to go see the Hoff live in Berlin. The dude is still touring. I don't know, how old is David Hasselhoff? I should have looked this up and I didn't. But he's touring, he's singing. Like, people pay a lot of money. And if you want to just treat yourself today, go home and YouTube David Hasselhoff Live. It's a special, special thing that you will never, ever forget. Um, you can say your pastor said it's part of your preparation for Advent is to go watch the Hoffs sing live in Berlin. It's special, but they obsess over him. It is unhealthy, it is incomprehensible, but they love the Hoff. The Hoff can't go to Germany and not be recognized within like two minutes of landing. Right? In Scripture... There's only one guy that I can imagine that I can see that the people of God at the time in the Old and New Testament loved and obsessed over as much as Germans love the Hoff, and that's Moses. The Jewish people love Moses. Like, unhealthy love Moses. Everything is about him. They dig Moses so much. As a matter of fact, we're going to get into Hebrews today. Hebrews spends a considerable amount of time talking about how Moses was one thing, but Jesus is another. And the reason that had to happen is because people were so obsessed with Moses, Jesus came and did his thing, and people looked at it and went, okay. Yeah, but, but Moses. I think we're going to go back to Moses. And they went back. He was a rock star in the Jewish community. And so as we're looking through our time in Advent, looking at Jesus being greater than the greats of faith that Scripture hails, today we're going to compare and contrast Jesus and Moses. And we're going to look at how it is that Jesus is greater than Moses is. And to do that, we have to look in a couple different places of Scripture. But mainly we're, our, our key text today is going to be Hebrews 3, 1 through 6. And so we're going to look at that real quick, and then we're going to dig into what is it that made Moses such a rock star why is Jesus greater than him? How is Jesus specifically greater than him? And why on earth should any of you care? All right. So let's look at Hebrews 3, 1, 6. This will set the scene for us. It says this. Therefore, holy brothers, 
you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses was also faithful in all of God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all of God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house. If indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Okay, a couple things here. Beautifully, every once in a while, Scripture just gives us the clear statement. Do we need to somehow go through and prove that Jesus is greater than Moses? No, it tells us right here, right? He's more worthy of glory and honor. A lot of times we have to dig through Scripture to get the things we want. This just plainly tells us. So we could just all go home and not dig into it. But I think the important thing as Christians is that we don't just understand that Christ is greater. That would make this whole sermon series pointless if that was all we needed. Right? We all know that Jesus is going to end up coming on top in all these stories. Again, this isn't rocket science. But the key is to understand how Jesus is greater. Because that's what will give us a better understanding of who he is as our Savior. Right? The nature and the character of Jesus. We want to know more about him. We want to understand him. And so to do that, we compare and contrast these things. Because each of these characters brings a certain thing to the table that Jesus then supersedes. Does that make sense? And so this morning we'll start with Moses. And to, do, to understand why they had this unhealthy obsession, we have to go all the way back to the beginning, to this idea of covenant. Last week we talked about Adam and how God made this covenant of works with Adam. How God said, Adam, you obey. And then he tested him with the tree. And if you obey, then you will walk with me and you have eternal life and you will be with me in my presence always and you will be you know, the ruler over all the earth and have dominion over it and all will go well for you and, and life will be beautiful as I've created it to be. Disobey and you will die. Adam disobeys and so now humanity is in this stuck place. Humanity is apart from God when they're supposed to be connected to God. Right? Part of the pain that you feel, part of the loneliness that you feel, Part of the anxiety that you feel as a human being, and every one of us has some of it right, to some extent, is because you are designed, you are created to be perpetually in God's presence. When God made man, he made them to be in communion with him. And because of sin, we are not perfectly in communion with him. You can't walk with him, you can't... You can pray and talk to him, but you can't just sit across from him and have a face-to-face -face conversation with the God who made you. And that is not how you were designed and meant to be. And so it, it messes things up. And so since the moment Adam was banished from the garden, since the moment Adam and Eve started to produce offspring, that offspring growing into what today is humanity, it has been constantly trying to really figure out two things. Number one, how do we get back to how things were? And number two, how do we relate to God? Think about this. They weren't in his presence. The people at some point wandered and had really no idea how it is that they were to relate to God. In most of Genesis, the Lord reveals himself to key individual people. But what scripture doesn't really give us is that the whole of humanity doesn't share in that revelation. Right When the Lord comes to Abraham... 
He doesn't come to every person that lives. Most of us would just be the population, and we would have no idea how we are to relate to the God who made us. None. We would just be wandering around, hearing the stories of how Adam messed up, and going, thanks, Adam. What are we supposed to do about it? I don't know. Where is God now? I don't know. How am I supposed to communicate with him? How do I know whether I'm doing what he wants me to do? I don't know. There's a hopelessness that comes as part of humanity there. And so by the time we get to Moses, we have a couple key things that happened. Number one, Abraham happened, and God promised Abraham descendants as numerous as the stars. Right? And he, he promised that eventually the Lord would, from Abraham's offspring, make himself a people. And number two, God kept that promise to Abraham. Humanity grew humongous. The Israelite community blew up. There were so many descendants in this Israelite tribe that really didn't know what it was. It was just people that were growing as offspring from Abraham. Again, they didn't know how they were supposed to live and how they were supposed to obey. But they got so large that Pharaoh, the ruler of Egypt, got scared of those people. And so he enslaved them so that he could control them, so that they wouldn't eventually uprise against him. Right? He was paranoid. He said, I'm going to take these people and put them under my thumb now before they get too big. Right? And then eventually, as they started growing more and more, he actually started to enact practices to keep their population at bay. Right? And so Moses is born into this system of slavery. And as a matter of fact, Moses, because he was a male, would have been killed. And so he's put in a river and sent downstream in order to be saved. Moses wasn't supposed to live or exist. But here we are. And so what happens is Moses comes in the Exodus, and he, he goes toe-to-toe -to -toe with Pharaoh, and we, we know the story, right? Eventually, through the plagues, Pharaoh relents, and he lets his people go, has a change of heart, tries to get him back, and the, the army of the Egyptians is swallowed up. So all of this happens, and here's the key, under the leadership of Moses. Right? God's the one doing the work, but Moses is the one on the ground. And so who's the one that knocks the staff, right? You've all seen the Charlton Heston movie, right? Takes the staff, bam, and the sea parts. If you're a person bystanding, who are you going to worship? Many of them falsely are going to worship Moses, right? And so from the beginning, Moses is this rock star. After they go through the sea, the Lord creates in them an actual people. And the way that he does it is by giving them the law. He tells them that they are going to be his people and he will be their God. Right? He brings them into the fold. And the reason, we've talked about this before, the reason the law is so celebrated, right? No one of us in our homes as kids got rules handed down and we're like, yes, more of those. Right? But the Israelites rejoice. Why? What have they been trying to do? How do we relate to God? How do we know if we're doing it right? How do we know if we're obeying? The law gave them the answer. The Lord comes to Moses and he gets it down on the tablets and Moses brings the law down to them. And he says, here's what the Lord tells us. Ten commandments. And then he gives them all kind of ceremonial and, and, and civil and religious laws on top of that of things that they're supposed to do. Now we know that the law exists to show us that we can't keep it, which is why we need Jesus. But at the time, the celebration came because they finally had an identity. They finally knew, right? 
How many of you have been in jobs where you have no idea what on earth your boss wants from you? Like, you don't know how to make him happy because everything you do, and you wish they would just tell you, do these seven things and you'll be a great employee, right? That's what they got. They got the instructions. And so they rejoice, and they got them from Moses. That's the key. In Exodus 20, he brings God's law down. And later on, we see that Moses fills a couple other things. Moses, although he's not officially one, he fulfills what we call the priestly role, right? Before Aaron becomes the high priest, he, he is the one who intercedes between the people and the Lord. Right? The people need something. The people need to know how this is all supposed to work. Moses, what do we do? Let me go up the mountain. God talks to me. He comes down. Here's the law. Here's what you're supposed to do. Right? Later on in Exodus 32, we see that Moses actually intercedes for the people. Right? They, they worship the golden calf. The Lord says, I'm going to be done with these guys. And Moses goes up the mountain and pleads on behalf of all the people that they might be spared. And the Lord indeed spares them. And so Moses is this massive figure in the Jewish community because he is the quintessential mediator between God and his people. We had no identity, no idea how to relate to God, no idea how we were doing. And Moses came along. Now we have an identity. We know who we are. We know how to live. They don't do it ever, right? But at least they know. And so it's no mistake that Moses becomes this absolute rock star in the community of faith because they finally have a way and a mediator. And it's this idea of mediation that's the key to understanding how Jesus is so much greater than Moses ever was. Let's look again at Hebrews 3. Jesus has more honor than Moses for a couple key reasons. Number one, Jesus is the greater priest than Moses ever was. If we're talking about someone who is to mediate between us and God, Moses did a pretty good job with what he had. But Jesus blows it out of the water, right? Later on in Hebrews 4, it tells us that we have this great high priest, Jesus, that is able to sympathize with us in our weakness because he has been tempted in every way as we have, yet without sin. Jesus experienced the fullness of humanity. That's why he came as a baby to walk through every bit of what it takes to live as a human being. If you ever go, well, I know Jesus calls me to live this way, but he doesn't really know my circumstance, or he doesn't know. He does. We talked about this last week in relation to Adam, right? What's the first thing that happens? Jesus is baptized, and then he's taken off to be tempted. He gets the same temptations thrown at him, and he gets it thrown at him while he's starved to death almost, and he passes the test. Jesus experiences temptation. Jesus experiences temptation to give in to the Pharisees. Jesus has experienced temptation to be able to gain himself power and prominence as a religious leader. When he starts his ministry, people are bowing at his feet. Even the Pharisees are curious at first. He could have easily become a rock star pastor. The rabbi to rule them all. Right? But he didn't fall into that temptation. He, in every way, walked through this earth with the same troubles that we experience, the same issues, the same fears, 
the same temptations, but he did not sin. Instead, he went to the cross sinless. And he actually mediated better than Moses did, right? What does Moses do? He goes up on the top of the hill and he just begs God not to punish the people. Jesus goes up to the cross undeserving and dies for the people. Right? Moses never took it that far, but Jesus absolutely did. And so Jesus has a better message than Moses, right? Moses' message was lawful obedience. Here's what you must do to be in God's good graces. Jesus' message was far different. It was salvation. Right? Moses taught the people how to relate to God. And Jesus changed the way all of mankind that trusts in him relates to God. One taught us how to relate. The other changed the way we relate. And so the way that we connect to God is completely different now because Jesus came and mediated and died on the cross for your sins and for mine. So Jesus is the greater priest. Number two, Jesus is greater in faithfulness than Moses. Right? Moses didn't represent the people perfectly. He's pretty good. He's worthy of the acclaim that he gets. But if we remember, Moses didn't get to enter the promised land. Right? No one but Jesus is perfect, even Moses. Right? He didn't quite handle himself all the way through, but Jesus did. Moses himself was a sinner under the same covenant. So when Moses brought the tablets down and said, this is what you must do, he was included in the statement. Jesus doesn't live inside the covenant, but he chose to place himself inside of the covenant of works and then pass the test. Imagine that. Jesus assumed the contract that God made with mankind that he didn't have to assume. He took the debt and then sacrificed himself to pay it so that we could have life. And so his faithfulness far supersedes what Moses ever could have dreamed. And then finally, Jesus is greater in status than Moses as well. Right? Verses 5 and 6 in Hebrews. Moses was faithful as a what? Servant. Jesus is faith faithful as a what? Son. Right? Moses was one of the creation. He was made. He wasn't begotten. Right? He didn't have a choice of whether or not to become human or not. Jesus comes down to earth as a human being, experiencing the degrading nature of what it means as a God to become human so that he could be our high priest, so that he could relate to us, so that he could understand us, so that we could cast our cares and our burdens on him. And so Jesus is more faithful than Moses, more great in status than Moses, and a better priest than Moses. And he is a son. And when he as a son dies, we also become sons and, and daughters. Right? It's just the language that scripture uses. Right? So we get to be adopted into the kingdom as sons and daughters because Christ went ahead of us and paid the penalty. And so in every way, Jesus is the greater Moses. He is the great high priest. He is the priest to end all priests. He is the perfect mediator between us and our God. If you're wondering how it works when you breathe your last, I don't know what heaven exactly looks like. We have some indication of the new heavens and the new earth. but We really don't know what it looks like. I can't describe to you what the gates look like. 
You know, we have the guy that spent seven minutes in heaven, supposedly, or whatever it is, when he died. I don't know. But I can tell you what's going to happen is this. You're going to stand before your maker. And you're going to have a recounting of every single thing that you have ever thought, done, or thought about doing. Every single sin that you've ever committed or lived out in your life is going to be placed before you in judgment. And the Lord is going to be ready to cast his judgment upon you. You're going to stand there entirely unworthy of any sense of what eternal life might even begin to look like. And right at that moment where you get condemned to hell, Jesus comes in. He steps in and he says, wait a minute. No. That one's with me. I'm the mediator. I know they deserve this, but they're under the umbrella of the stuff that I've done to be able to take care of that. So their debt is paid. Why does it matter so much that, that Jesus is better? Here's the thing. As I talked about at the very beginning, the book of Hebrews had to exist. It was written because there were people during the time of Christ's coming, living on earth, crucifixion, resurrection, ascension. All that happened. People witnessed it. And there were still folks that went, no, I'm going to go with Moses. And so Hebrews is written essentially as an as a argument, a, a convincing document that Jesus is actually greater. As if people needed convincing. Like you might say this and like, well, of course Jesus is greater. Why do we need convincing? Well, there was a whole book in scripture written because the people at the time wanted to literally worship anything else they could but the one who they should worship. And the same is true for us today. We, by nature of our sin, right, are what some call factories of idols. We just have it in our, in our DNA, in our blood, to worship anything but Jesus by nature. We don't see it necessarily as drastic as in the time of Moses. You know, they literally made a cow out of all their jewelry and out of gold and then worshipped it. I always picture Moses coming down from the hill and seeing that happen and going, well, it was gone for like a day. What the heck? Right? We're not that drastic, but we have our own cows that we love. Some of us love the tradition. Be honest, when I sent that survey out, there were some of you that were like, if it's not 7 o'clock, it better be dark. It's a, can it's a candlelight service, Vince. It's not like we have blinds that we could put down, right? right? We are, some of us, our idol is tradition. We hold on to that way that it's always been done. And some traditions are good, right? All of you have Christmas traditions of things you do in your families. But we have traditions that we hold on to in an idol-fashioning way. For some of us, it's our wealth. It's our stuff. For some of us, it's our family. For some of us, it's our relationships, romantically or otherwise. We all have things that we put our faith and hope and trust in rather than Jesus. Every one of us has been presented with the gospel. Right? You've heard it like four times just today of what the gospel is, that Christ died on the cross for your sins so that you might be forgiven and have eternal life, right? No one hears without excuse. You know what the truth is, but every one of us worships other things. We do. And that's not a condemnation from your pastor. I'm included in that. We do. We naturally do. And so we, just like the people of Scripture time, need to be reminded of the greatness of God. That's why we do a series like this. It's not rocket science. It's not stuff that you probably don't already know. But we need it 
because we need to remind ourselves each and every day anew who we are, who Jesus is, and that he is in fact greater. And so the implications really are twofold. Biblically, I think we have to be really cautious about who we lift up in scripture. A lot of us in Sunday school grew up with the dare to be a Daniel or, you know, have faith like David, if you could just pick up five smooth, right? And those aren't necessarily always terrible things. There are some things about people in Scripture that we should emulate. But it's important to know that the point of people in Scripture is to point to Christ. Moses' job was that people might remember him and go, wow, he was that great and still didn't measure up. Hmm. David was a great king. But he was also an adulterous murderer who checked out women from his porch. Right? <laughs> All these people that we say are great, what Scripture does is take them, demonstrate their supposed greatness, and then point out how they still aren't enough. Because no prophet, no king, no judge, no priest could ever bring us back into the relationship with God that we need to be in. It needed to be Jesus, and he was the only way. And so biblically, we should be careful about what we do to highlight the characters of God. We shouldn't say, dare to be a Daniel. We should be dare to be a follower of Christ. Culturally, we have to be careful about the things that we idolize. We have to ask ourselves, what are the things that we have a natural tendency to worship more than Jesus? Those things matter. So the question for you this morning is, is Jesus actually your high priest? Is he the mediator for you? Is he the one that you turn to in times of loneliness, in times of sickness, in times of pain, in times of joy? Is he the one who you look to, to be your way that you relate to God, to be your your capstone, your cornerstone, your rock and your salvation? Or are there other things that take preeminence? Is your instinct to run to the securities that you've created for yourself in this world, or is your instinct to run into the arms of the Savior who died for you on the cross? Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you love us. Thank you that you are with us. Thank you that you care for us. And thank you that you sent your Son to die for us and for our sins so that we might have a great high priest with whom we can relate. Lord, we ask you that you would point us in the directions of our idols. You would allow us to see the ways in which we have fallen short. That you would remind us that you are the mediator to end all mediators. That you are our high priest, that you are our greatest prophet, that you are our most mighty king. We ask that you would remind us of that truth this week as we go out to be your servants and your people. And we love you and we praise you. And all God's people said, Amen.